I live in Europe, and it's incredibly easy to travel here. By bus, train or plane, I can be in any other European country in a matter of hours, for pretty cheap. But while I'm in other countries, I still want to check my emails, check my YouTube analytics and all that fun stuff. Well, by using Surfshark VPN, I changed my location to France using one of their 3200 plus servers, and I'm no longer annoyed by thousands of emails from Google freaking out saying, Oh my god, there's a computer in Spain trying to hack you! There isn't Google. It's me. And thanks to Surfshark, I'm no longer bothered by these annoying messages. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and log into all your accounts anywhere with zero hassle and no annoying emails. We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes and get Incogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. This show is brought to you by my store, where you can purchase all of my audiobooks for five bucks, and now you can purchase clothing and tote bags and all those sorts of wonderful things uh, with the beautiful comics that are designed by my friend uh, Valentina Angela Rios. Um, yeah, it's the easiest way to support the show, and... Um, I've tried to find the best quality clothing possible, so you're going to be nice and warm and nice and, say, stylish. I don't know. I, I dress like a hobo, but uh, the clothes themselves are really nice. I just personally know nothing about fashion, but Valentina's an artist, and she's helped create all of these. So trust her and her artistic view. Uh, yeah, support the show, support artists. Let's dive in. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kessie Part 2. 6. I remember it was Friday again, three weeks after we voted on TV, and everybody who could walk was herded over to Building 1, what they tried to tell us is chest x-rays for TB, which I know is a check to see if everybody's machinery is functioning up to par. We're benched in a long row, down a hall leading to a door marked x-ray. Next to x-ray is a door marked E-E-N-T where they check our throats during winter. Across the hall from us is another bench, and it leads to that metal door with all the rivets, and nothing marked in it at all. Two guys are dozing on the bench between two black boys, while another victim inside is getting his treatment, and I can hear him screaming. The door opens inward with a whoosh, and I can see the twinkling tubes in the room. 
They wheel the victim out, still smoking. I grip the bench where I sit to keep from being sucked through that door. A black boy and a white one drag one of the other guys on the bench to his feet, and he sways and staggers under the drugs in him. They usually give you red capsules before shock. They push him through the door, and the technicians get under each arm. For one second, I see the guy realizes where they got him, and he stiffens both heels into the cement floor to keep from being pulled up to the table. Then the door pulls shut, boom, with metal hitting a mattress. And I can't see him anymore. Man, what they got going on in there? May Murphy asks Harding. In there? Oh, why, that's right, isn't it? You haven't had the pleasure. Pity. An experience no human should be without. Harding laces his fingers behind his neck and leans back to look at the door. That's the shock shaft I was telling you about some time back, my friend. The EST, Electroshock Therapy. Those fortunate souls in there are being given a free trip to the moon. No, on second thought, it isn't completely free. You pay for the service with brain cells instead of money. And everybody has simply billions of brain cells on deposit. You won't miss a few. He frowns at the one lone man left on the bench. Not a very large clientele today, it seems. Nothing like the crowds of yesteryear. But then, c'est la vie. Fads come and go. And I'm afraid we are witnessing the sunset of EST. Our dear old nurse is one of the few with heart to stand up for the old Faulknerian tradition in the treatments of the rejects of sanity. Brain burning. The door opens. A gurney comes whirring out. Nobody pushing it. Takes the corner on two wheels and disappears, smoking up the hall. McMurphy watches them take the last guy and close the door. What they do is... McMurphy listens a moment. Take some bird in there and shoot electricity through his skull. That's a concise way of putting it. What the hell for? Why, the patient's good, of course. Everything done here is for the patient's good. You may sometimes get the impression, having only lived on our ward, that the hospital is a vast, efficient mechanism that would function quite well if the patients were not imposed on it. But that's not true. EST isn't always used for punitive measures, as our nurse uses it, and isn't pure sadism on the staff's part either. A number of supposed irrecoverables were brought back into contact with shock, just as a number were helped with lobotomy and leucotomy. Shock treatment has some advantages. It's cheap, quick, entirely painless. It simply induces a seizure. What a life, Saffold moans. Gives some of us pills to stop a fit. Gives the rest of us shock to start one. Harding leans forward to explain it to McMurphy. Here's how it came about. Two psychiatrists were visiting a slaughterhouse for God knows what perverse reason, and they were watching cattle being killed by a blow between the eyes with a sledgehammer. They noticed that not all the cattle were killed, that some would fall to the floor in a state that greatly resembled an epileptic convulsion. Ah, so... The first doctor says, This is exactly what we need for our patients. See? Induced fit. His colleague agreed, of course. It was known that men coming out of epileptic convulsion were inclined to be calmer and more peaceful, and that violent cases, completely out of contact, were able to carry on rational conversations after a convulsion. No one knew why. 
They still don't. But it was obvious that if a seizure could be induced in non-epileptics, great benefits might result. And here, before them, stood a man inducing seizures every so often with remarkable aplomb. Scanlon says he thought a guy used a hammer instead of a bomb, but Harding says he will ignore that completely, and he goes ahead with the explanation. A hammer is what the butcher used, and it was here that the colleague had some reservations. After all, a man wasn't a cow. Who knows when the hammer might slip and break a nose, even knock out a mouthful of teeth? Then where would they be with the high cost of dental work? If they were going to knock a man in the head, they needed to use something surer and more accurate than a hammer. They finally settled on electricity. Jesus, didn't they think it might do some damage? Didn't the public raise cane about it? I don't think you fully understand the public, my friend. In this country, when something is out of order, then the quickest way to get it fixed is the best way. And Murphy shakes his head. Oh, wait! Electricity through the head? Man, that's like electrocuting a guy for murder. The reason for both activities are more closely related than you might think. They are both cures. And you say it don't hurt? I personally guarantee it. Completely painless. One flash and you're unconscious immediately. No gas, no needle, no sledgehammer. Absolutely painless. The thing is, no one ever wants another one. You change. You forget things. It's as if... He presses his hands against his temples, shutting his eyes. It's as if the jolt sets off a wild carnival wheel of images, emotions, memories. These wheels, you've seen them. The barker takes the bed and pushes a button. Chang! With light and sound and numbers round and round in a whirlwind. And maybe you win with what you end up with. Maybe you lose and you have to play again. Pay the man for another spin, son. Pay the man. Take it easy, Harden. The door opens, and the gurney comes back out with the guy under a sheet, and the technicians go for a coffee. And Murphy runs his hands through his hair. I don't seem to be able to get all this stuff that's happening straight in my mind. What's that? This shock treatment? Yeah. No, not just that. All of this. He waves his hand in a circle. All these things going on. Harding's hand touches McMurphy's knee. Put your troubled mind at ease, my friend. In all likelihood, you needn't concern yourself with EST. It's almost out of vogue and only used in extreme cases. Nothing else seems to reach like a lobotomy. Now, lobotomy, that's chopping away part of the brain. You're right. You're becoming very sophisticated in the jargon. Yes, chopping away the brain. Frontal lobe castration. I guess if she can't do it below the bell, she'll do it above the eyes. You mean, ratchet? I do indeed. I didn't think the nurse had say so on this kind of thing. She does indeed. But Murphy acts like he's glad to get off talking about shock and lobotomy and get back talking about the big nurse. He asks Harding what he figures is wrong with her. Scanlon, Harding, some of the others have all kinds of ideas. They talk for a while whether she's the root of all the troubles here or not, and Harding says she's the root of most of it. Most of the other guys think so too. But 
McMurphy isn't so sure anymore. He says he thought so at one time, but now he don't know. He says he don't think getting her out of the way could really make much a difference. He says that there's something bigger making all this mess, and goes on and tries to explain what he thinks he is. Finally, he gives up when he can't explain it. McMurphy doesn't know it, but he's onto what I've realized a long time back. That it's not just the big nurse by herself, but it's the whole combine, the nationwide combine, that's the really big force. And the nurse is just a high-ranking official for them. The guys don't agree with McMurphy. They say they know what the trouble with things is, and then get in an argument about that. They argue, so McMurphy interrupts them. Hell's bells! Listen to you, McMurphy says. All I hear is grap, 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 about the nurse or the staff or the hospital. Scanlon wants to bomb the whole outfit. Seffel blames the drugs. Fredrickson blames his family trouble. Well, you're all just passing the buck. He says that the big nurse is just a bitter, icy-hearted old woman. And all this business trying to get him to lock horns with her is just a lot of bull. Wouldn't do anybody any good. Especially him. Getting shut of her wouldn't be getting shut of the real, deep-down hang-up that's causing the gripe. You think not? Harding says. Then, since you are suddenly so lucid on the problems of mental health, what is this trouble? What is this deep-down hang-up, as you so cleverly put it? I tell you, man, I don't know. I never seen the beat of it. He sits still for a minute, listening to the hum from the x-ray room. Then he says, But if it was no more than you say, if it was, say, just this old nurse with her sex worries, then the solution to all your problems would be just throw her down and solve her worries, wouldn't it? Scanlon claps his hands. Hot damn. That's it. You're nominated, Mac. You're just the stud to handle the job. Not me. No, not me. Not me. No, sir. You got the wrong boy. Why not? I thought you were a super stud with all that old wham-bam. Scanlon, buddy. I plan to stay as clear of that old buzzard as I possibly can. So I've been noticing, Harding says, smiling. What's happened between the two of you? You had her on the ropes for a period over there, then you let up. A sudden compassion for our angel of mercy? No. Found out a few things, that's why. Asked around some different places. Found out why you guys all kiss her ass so much, and bow and scrape, and that'll walk all over you. I got wise to what you were using me for. Huh? That's interesting. You're blamed right it's interesting. It's interesting to me that you bums didn't tell me what a risk I was running, twisting her tail that way. Just because I don't like her ain't a sign I'm gonna bug her into adding another year or two to my sentence. You gotta swallow your pride sometimes. Keep an eye out for old number one. Why, friends, you don't suppose there's anything to this rumor that our old Mr. McMurphy has conformed to policy merely to aid his chances of an early release? You know what I'm talking about, Harden. Why didn't you tell me she'd keep me committed in here till she's good and ready to turn me loose? Why, I'd forgotten you were committed. Harding's face folds in the middle over his grin. Yes, you're becoming sly, just like the rest of us. You damn betcha I'm becoming sly. Why should it be me that goes to bed at these meetings over some piddling little gripes about keeping the door open and about cigarettes in the nurse's station? I couldn't figure at first why you guys were coming at me like I was some kind of savior. 
Then I just happen to find out about the way that the nurses have the big say as to who gets discharged and who doesn't. And I got wise awful damn fast. I said, why do those slippery bastards have called me? Snow being holding their back. If that don't beat all, conned old R.P. McMurphy. He tips his head back and leans at the line of us on the bench. Well, I don't mean nothing personal, you understand, buddies, but screw that noise. I want to head ahead just as much as the rest of you. I got just as much to lose hassling that old buzzard as you do. He grins and winks down his nose, and digs Harding in the ribs with his thumb, like he's finished with the whole thing, but no hard feelings, when Harding says something else. No, you've got much more to lose than I do, my friend. Harding's grinning again, looking with that skitterish sideways look of a jumpy mare, a dipping, rearing motion of the head. Everybody moves down a place. Martini comes away from the x-ray screen, buttoning his shirt and muttering, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't saw it. And Billy Bivet goes to the black glass to take Martini's place. You have a lot more to lose than I do, Harding says again. I'm voluntary. I'm not committed. May Murphy doesn't say a word. He's got that same puzzled look on his face, like there's something isn't right, something he can't put his finger on. He just sits there, looking at Harding, and Harding's rearing smile fades, and he goes to fidgeting around from McMurphy, staring at him so funny. He swallows and says, As a matter of fact, there are only a few men on the ward who are committed. Only Scanlon and, well, I guess some of the chronics, and you. Not many commitments in the whole hospital. No, not many at all. Then he stops his voice dribbling away under McMurphy's eyes. After a bit of silence, McMurphy says softly, Are you bullshitting me? Harding shakes his head. He looks frightened. McMurphy stands up in the hall and says, Are you guys bullshitting me? Nobody says anything. McMurphy walks up and down in front of the bench, running his hands around in that thick hair. He walks all the way to the back of the line, then all the way to the front to the x-ray machine. It hisses and spits at him. You, Billy, you must be committed for Christ's sakes. Billy's got his back up to us, his chin on the screen, standing on tiptoe. No, he says into the machinery. Then why? Why? You're just a young guy. You ought to be out, running around in a convertible, bird-dogging girls. All of this. He sweeps his hand round him again. Why do you stand for it? Billy doesn't say anything, I mean, Murphy turns from him to another couple of guys. Tell me why. You gripe, you bitch on weeks for end about how you can't stay in this place, can't stand the nurse or anything about her, and all the time you ain't committed? I could understand it with some of these old guys on the ward. They're nuts. But you? You're not exactly the everyday man on the street, but you're not nuts. They don't argue with him. He moves on to Seffel. Seffel, what about you? Nothing wrong with you, but you have fits. Hell, I had an uncle through conniptions twice as bad as yours. Saw visions from the devil to boot, but he didn't lock himself in a nut house. You could get along outside, if you had the guts. Sure. It's Billy, turned from the screen, his face boiling tears. Sure, he screams again. If 
we had the g- 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 guts, I could go outside today. If I ha- had the g- guts, my m- mo- mother is a good friend of Mr. M- Ratchet. I could get an AMA signed this afternoon. If I had the guts. B-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-b-